Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll hear about a proposal before the Connecticut legislature that could increase the state's sales tax. But first, today we're talking about the Iraq War. The United States invaded Iraq March 20th, 2003, and the war waged on for nearly nine years until President Obama followed through on an agreement to have the U.S. military officially withdraw from the country in December 2011. But that didn't mean the war ended. Today, 5,000 U.S. troops are still in Iraq to train and support Iraqi forces who are currently battling ISIS. In 2014, ISIS took control of key cities in Iraq. The dominance of the so-called caliphate grew out of the country's instability and the rise of insurgents who streamed into Iraq after the U.S. invaded. Ironically, the support American troops are giving Iraqi soldiers today is what the military was doing back in 2004. Retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Michael Zakea knows firsthand during his year-long deployment then, his job was to train and lead the 1st Iraqi Army Battalion. He details his mission in the new book, The Ragged Edge, co-written with Ted Kemp, a senior editor at CNBC. Mike joins us in studio here in Hartford. Ted Kemp joins us by phone. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks a lot for having us. So Michael Zakay, again, retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps, a co-author of The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. That's the full title. You've been on the show before. For our listeners who don't know a little bit about you, when did you decide to enlist in the U.S. military? Sure. I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, after my junior year in high school in 1985. So uh, I can't believe it's more than 32 years <laughs> now. But I got commissioned. I went to college. I, I got a scholarship. I got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and then I was a career Marine. And I had a number of deployments. I went to Somalia. I was in Haiti. I did some work called B billets or short billets. I was on recruiting duty. And then I got recalled to uh, go to Iraq to do this particular advisory mission at a time when no American had ever built and trained and led in combat in Iraq, uh, in Arab military. So this is a, a book, a long time coming, because you have spent a long time um, going over your time in Iraq. Now in Connecticut, you're a well-known advocate among the veterans community. You've been leading uh, the program at UConn, the Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans with Disabilities, for some time. Uh, but why do this book? This book came out of therapy I was doing in 2007, 2008, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And you have to write down a bunch of events that happen. Then you keep going over it and keep going over it and keep going over it and finding more details and processing it. By the time I had finished that process, I had over 300 pages of written, handwritten material. I showed it to a friend of mine, and he suggested that this could and should be a book. And um, I realized that I needed 
help in crafting it as a as a narrative. And I put up a help wanted ad on a writer's uh, forum, and a bunch of people applied. And eventually, I hooked up with Ted, and uh, Ted, you know, came aboard in late 2008. Now, Ted is on the phone with us. He's a senior editor at CNBC. Ted, what is it about Mike's story that compelled you to answer that ad and start this collaboration? I'm a sort of a autodidact of, of history, and uh, I cover geopolitics uh, for CNBC. It's just something that's been a big interest of mine for a long time, including military issues. And when Mike approached me, we were having uh, pizza in Grand Central Station the first time we met face-to-face to talk about the possibility of working together. And it became clear early on that he had a really extraordinary story to tell because he was a historically significant individual whose story had never been told. And he's historically significant because he was the first U.S. serviceman to, to try to raise a, a you know, so-called sort of native military unit to fight sort of on behalf of the United States or to further U.S. goals. And that's something that had no Westerner had done since, since Lawrence of Arabia did it, literally 100 years ago this year. On top of that, he had such a wealth of information. He had, he had been a meticulous journal keeper. He had written these therapeutic pages, as he was mentioning earlier. And he had a number of photographs, and it just there was a lot there to work with. And so I immediately accepted Mike, take us back to 2004. We know now there was a lot of theater uh, that was taking place from uh, the administration of George W. Bush. We invaded in 2003. After a few weeks, the U.S. uh, declared victory. And um, at this time, you're an officer in the Marine Corps. You're given a job to do in 2004. Um, A lot of what we now know about um, the war was probably not known back then, at least right. from, from you leading uh, this unit. So take us back to that time and how you felt knowing that you were being deployed there to do this particular mission, to train uh, the Iraqis uh, in this new Iraqi army. Like many or all Americans, I had been subject to a certain amount of propaganda about the Iraqi army, and I became a Marine officer right during the first Gulf War, and there's a lot of talk about their Soviet order of battle, and they're the fourth largest land army in the world, and they've been in eight years of combat against the Iranians, et cetera. And that propaganda during my military career sort of continued, and you know everybody believed that Saddam Hussein was sort of this really bad actor. The Iraqi army, uh, during the what they call the march up, basically collapsed within a period of a uh, few weeks. So when I got orders, there was at that time a low-level insurgency. There were some bombs. There were people still running around Baghdad without armed convoys or things like that. When I got there, though, it became very apparent that, especially in March of 2004, which is when the whole Fallujah thing uh, happened, um, and then April when the first Battle of Fallujah happened, that there was a real insurgency that I believe that the Department of Defense and the Bush administration were slow to identify. They specifically referred to it as a few dead-enders, a few people who, you know, were not ready to give up the fight and that they would eventually. But my experience and what I saw on the ground was that this is a real intent insurgency that wanted to fight. They were not dead-enders. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm speaking to the co-authors of a new book. It's called The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. It's an account of the work that Michael Zakea did, a Connecticut resident, retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, Ted Kemp helped write that book, senior editor at CNBC. You know, I wanted to read a passage, uh, Mike. You mentioned this insurgency. Um, it was written here. There was a real insurgency churning in Iraq under its own power. The White House didn't call it by its name, but we on the ground knew what it was. Angry men flowing into Iraq from all over the Middle East and beyond. By the spring of 04, we were not doing a cleanup operation anymore. We were fighting an insurgency that had not existed until we sparked it. Right. I think it's really, really important because a lot of my combat was with non-Iraqis who had joined what was then called al-Qaeda in Iraq. It was started by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, Actually, it was, he originally called it uh, the Islamic State of Iraq, and then he pledged allegiance to Osama bin Laden and became al-Qaeda in Iraq. But none of that existed before we got there, and it started specifically in response to our presence in, in Iraq. And there were people coming from all over the Middle East to fight. We encountered a lot of Syrians, um, Libyans, Saudis, uh, Chechnyans. A lot of Chechnyans came. Their propaganda was that they wanted to fight the Crusaders and the Zionists. Tell us about the recruits. Paul Bremer, if we remember, uh, was the one that led the Coalition Provisional Authority. He didn't do any favors by disbanding the country's, Iraq's military, after the U.S. invaded. So now you had to start from scratch. Who were the people you re- recruited, and what were the challenges? This is really fascinating, and um, this is really how I got to know Iraqis and know the country. And uh, you know, my counterpart, um, Zane, never forgot to uh, remind me that these were poor farmers. And when we say poor, you know, we have, in the United States, we have a certain idea of what, uh, you know, somebody from the, the uh, rural America is like. But these are really like subsistence uh, farmers, uh, people who never had access to health care. Um, many people never had shoes before. Many of the concepts that we were introducing to them were completely alien to them, not just because we were Americans speaking a different language, but concepts of providing them with the gear that they needed or you know, the physical fitness, uh, morning physical fitness training that we did, these were alien uh, concepts to them. Many of them were had a very rudimentary, elementary level education. Uh, many of them were functionally illiterate. So normal ways of training that we would use in the United States, which is complemented by textbooks, et cetera, were not available to us. It was all word of mouth and training by showing. I wanted to bring a co-author Ted Kemp back in the conversation again, also senior editor at CNBC. Ted, you're a civilian. You're listening to all of these accounts, reading the journals of this U.S. Marine, Michael Zakea. How do you translate all of that into a book that's easy to read that could appeal to other civilians? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, going into it, I didn't know the answer to that question. But it revealed itself pretty clearly that, uh, and I think this comes through in the book, is that it's this is not just a military story. I mean, Mike has alluded to how you had had Sunni Arabs, Shiite Arabs, Kurds. He even had there were Yazidis in the battalion, other smaller minorities, and then of course the Americans themselves. So we're talking about a, this sort of uh, collision of several cultures, some of which had sort of uh, pre-existing animus toward one another. And it became clear to me as we were kind of crafting this narrative that this was really a story about several different cultures trying to come together and working together for this mission or working against each other for this mission, as was the case uh, sometimes. And it all came down to an individual by individual basis. 
Um, and that's why, the, that's why the Ragged Edge is really the first story ever told in any medium, uh, nonfiction story about the Iraq War that actually includes Iraqi characters. It seems it seems strange. That was another thing that I discovered is just looking at what had already been done. It was there were very few Iraqis or almost no Iraqis talked about in any of these uh, any of these books that you could read or movies you would see or television shows. You name it, and that's where there was the really interesting story was happening was these cultural misunderstandings, cultural miscues, and this sort of discovering of each other and each other's cultures and how each other thought. And we very deliberately make sure that we use Arab names, even if we've changed some of the Arab names for the Iraqis that we work with. Virtually 100% of the uh, books about Iraq and Afghanistan Americanize uh, the Iraqis and Afghans that work with Americans. There's a tendency to want to impose our American lens onto these people to make them American and make them palatable to you know an American audience yeah and I think that the people who have read the book who have given us feedback what they're saying is that the thing that really impacts readers is that's where they're really learning things they're really learning just how fundamentally different the culture is the cultures are in in the Middle East from the American expectation they they are not Westerners and they do not wish to be and it's, that is a fundamental truth to understand if you're going to understand the Iraq War or the Syria War. Before we head to break, we were talking about this collision of cultures. Uh, Mike, as you were training these uh, Iraqi recruits, give us an example, an anecdote of just in, in simple training, um, what it was like to see that collision of cultures before you. This idea about, and I wrote about this, they would leave water bottles all over the place, not just in the military, but in the United States. I mean, you don't just leave stuff all around. But there, they have a very different culture, and I think that their culture is predicated on their physical environment. You know, it's a desert culture, and there's basically a lack of everything. So the whole culture is based on, you know, we can all survive in this very difficult, harsh environment, whereas in the United States, we have a culture of plenty. So we're like, well, get your own stuff. Take care of yourself. It's all around you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a new book, The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. It's written by Connecticut Marine Michael Zakea and CNBC senior editor Ted Kemp. When we come back from a short break, we'll find out more about the hard realities of the Iraq War from the perspective of Zakea. And we'll ask him and Ted Kemp what lessons the U.S. should take from the war as it deals with ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. You, too, can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Where we live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the Iraq War from the perspective of Iraq War veteran and Connecticut resident Michael Zakea. Zakea is a retired U.S. Marine Corps lieutenant colonel who has written, uh, co-written a book with CNBC senior editor Ted Kemp called The Ragged Edge, a UN, U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. We mentioned a little earlier um, in the show that this book, and, and Ted Kemp made this point too, you really tried to humanize uh, the Iraqis that you were working with, Michael. When you've written this book, who's the target audience? Who do you think will pick up this book? I think that one, um, veterans and military uh, people with a military background will certainly be interested in reading this. Um, I was the first, but now many 
thousands, maybe not tens of thousands, but certainly thousands of Americans have had experiences living and working with and advising uh, Iraqis. And we still have American advisors on the ground supporting Iraq, uh, fighting against ISIS right now. I think that people who are generally interested in cross-cultural kind of uh, interactions will enjoy this. I think people who are interested in foreign policy and foreign affairs will be interested in this. I think that we offer a lot to a lot of different audiences. I want to take a quick call now. John is calling from Glastonbury. John, you're on the show. Well, thank you for taking my call. My question is, based on their experience in dealing with Iraqis, I read a poll recently, Pew Research had put out, saying that 91% of Iraqi citizens believe that Sharia law should be the law of the land. And I, I just wanted to get their take on how they feel Iraqi citizens assimilating to American culture, given some of the discussions that have taken place so far, and if they could weigh in on this you know, very charged uh, topic regarding immigration policy. All right, John, thank you for your two questions. Mike, you want to take that one? I do, as a matter of fact. I don't want to give away too much about the book. What I can tell you is that the great majority of Iraqis do not want to live in an autocratic theocracy. Yes, they are majority are Muslims, and they want to live as Muslims, but they don't want to live under an, an extreme ISIS regime. I helped a number of Iraqis interpreters come to the United States. I've helped them assimilate. One of my interpreters lives in Connecticut. I've helped him. He's now an American citizen. And my experience is that there's been no problems with Iraqis who come to the United States assimilating into American culture. Ted Kemp, did you also want to respond? Yeah, just would reiterate what Mike said about a big part of the reason that there were Iraqis who were willing to work with the Americans in the first place is that they very much were averse to this idea of a, of a theocratic autocracy. Even the religious ones, and Mike's closest friend in, in the battalion, um, who's named Zane in the book, he he was deeply religious, is deeply religious, I should say, but was averse to this idea of a heavy-handed government and wanted to see Iraq actually become more like the United States. It was a more merit-driven society, a society that you know had equal protection for various minorities and sects and religions. And I think that that was the experience that Mike had with most of the Iraqis, and these were military Iraqis, but most of the Iraqis that he was dealing with. We've mentioned Zayn a couple of times now uh, in the hour. Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with him, him, Michael. I know in the book there is a scene in the beginning where you're talking about when your deployment was up and what that was like, how it took a toll on Zayn. Yeah, he called me brother. I called him brother. Um, a great deal of my time, uh, waking hours, working hours, probably up to 20 hours a day spent uh, with Zane and doing the hard work of, uh, you know, supplying and outfitting the battalion. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but I can tell you that he saved or participated in saving my life. And eventually I was inducted into his tribe so that if any harm came to me, it would incur a blood debt or a blood feud with his tribe. You talk about the worry that he had that you would be harmed because yeah. you were in a very critical role training this new Iraqi army battalion. The insurgents saw you as the enemy. Yes, and Zarqawi had written a letter that said specifically that we have to kill the Iraqi army before it stands up. If they stand up, then democracy will come and we will lose. So because we were on the leading edge, we were very specifically targeted by Zarqawi and his organization at that time. So we suffered a lot of atrocities. We were in daily contact with al-Qaeda in Iraq. They were very intent on destroying not just 
the battalion, but the bonds between the Americans and the Iraqis. That would have been mission failure for us. Let's talk a little bit more about al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, which many people point to being the precursor to ISIS. Right. So much attention now on ISIS. We started the, the show with a clip from the news of, of the Iraqi forces there now battling ISIS uh, to try to get them out of Mosul. Uh, when you see all of this happening now, Mike, what is your response? And were there ways to avoid uh, what we have to deal with today? I'm going to answer the first question first. So my response, especially when ISIS uh, took Fallujah and uh, subsequently when ISIS took uh, Mosul with less than 1,000 soldiers that defeated a 20,000-man garrison in Mosul, basically the entire collapse or the collapse of the entire Iraqi army there, very, very disillusioned, very extremely, uh, sorely, sorely disillusioned, as were many veterans of the second battle. Yeah, of the second battle. Right. A lot of Marines died. Yes, uh, a lot of Marines died. A lot of Marines were wounded. Uh, you know, my battalion took heavy casualties as well, and you know, obviously, I was wounded uh, there. So very, very disillusioned. But at the same time, uh, I can't say it was necessarily unexpected. I understand that there's a need for an advisory mission, and that you know, historically, there there is an advisory mission in the military. But I think it's a real geopolitical mistake to predicate the success of our geopolitical objectives on an advisory mission or on the actions or motivations of a third country military. Ted Kemp, what does the rise of ISIS today mean for the timing of this book? It's our position, and I think it's a position of a lot of political scientists, for example, that that this is one war. Uh, the war that started in 2003 is the same war that we're in now, and there's there's very clear links between the story that takes place in the Ragged Edge and today. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who is in the Ragged Edge, who was eventually killed with the aid of the 5th Battalion, which Mike trained, he's in the book, and he is the person who founded ISIS. Uh, Mike's battalion was... Mike literally trained the Iraqi soldiers who or literally were killing or attempting to kill the very individuals who would later form ISIS. So there's a direct continuity there. And um, with the United States now potentially looking at increasing the advisory role in Syria, and with, uh, as Mike pointed to, the the successes that ISIS had in 2014, it gave us a new relevance and uh, marked an uptick in the interest that we were seeing in the book from publishers. When you look on television today and you see footage of Iraqi soldiers fighting against ISIS, those are two, two enemies fighting each other, right? Mike Zakea is literally the individual who was there at the very beginning of both of those lines forming. The very first secular Iraqi rifle battalion was under, he trained it, and they were literally trying to kill the very same individuals who would later form ISIS. So we're talking about the very genesis of everything that you see going on in the news today. That's what the Ragged Edge is about. This country of Iraq, very diverse. Um, there's been critics of the war looking back at Iraq uh, and the conflict there, and the idea that the U.S. was intent on uh, nation building, but they were in a nation that they knew very little about. Right. I really think that we looked at Iraq, and as I certainly did before I started uh, really studying Iraq to get to know it, but as monolithic. You know, the truth is Iraq has a long, long history, and many both ethnic and religious groups live there. Uh, we dealt with uh, Zoroastrians, Yazidis, Turkmen, Chaldeans, Assyrians, 
all have their separate identities, their separate histories. And for many you know, hundreds of years, uh, centuries, they all lived in relative harmony until now. And there's basically been a de facto ethnocide or religiouside partitioning of the country into three very distinct, the Shia, the Sunni, and the, and the Kurds, with you saw an international effort to rescue the Yazidis that ISIS was intent on completely killing based on their understanding of the Yazidi religion. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today I'm talking to the co-authors of a new book, The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. Michael Zakea is a retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Marine Corps, a Connecticut resident. Also, Ted Kemp, senior editor at CNBC. He's joining us by phone today. We had talked about who you want to pick up this book and learn from it. Something that was struck me, Michael, the foreword was written by retired Major General Paul Eaton. This was the, the general that you worked under the first part of your deployment. He wrote in that foreword, quote, I don't know if we ever had any chance to succeed. That's a pretty sobering thought because, you know, obviously when we went to the Green Zone, he called us to the Green Zone and he talked to us and he said, and that's where the title of the book came from, Gentlemen, We Are Operating at the Ragged Edge of Our Competence and there's no assurance of success. That was him telling us that we're in uncharted waters. We've This has never been done before. There's no safety net. There is no rescuing if you get in trouble. That was a very sobering moment. So for him now to say 10 years later, I don't know if we ever had a chance at success. I mean, I'm sure he believed at the time that we were going to be successful, but there was, um, it's very hard to describe, and we try to describe just the lack of any kind of uh, structure or support there was when we started. I wanted to ask you how this war shaped your life after the military. You mentioned you were injured in the Second Battle of Fallujah. What happened after? Right. So I had several injuries, but I was wounded by a rocket pill grenade in the Second Battle of Fallujah. RPG went off right behind my head. I came home. I subsequently had, uh, at the time, it was undiagnosed, but eventually diagnosed uh, with traumatic brain injury and uh, certainly post-traumatic stress and many years of physical rehabilitation and working through that, you know, obviously now I've become a very committed and very vocal and visible veterans advocate and, you know, with connections all across the country to other veterans and other veteran organizations to help people who have suffered. Uh, millions of American families have been shattered by this war. And I think that this is the work of a generation or more to um, make it right. One of the things I can mention is I've recently joined the board of directors of the Brain Injury Association of Connecticut to work with veterans in Connecticut who are suffering from traumatic brain injury. We just have a few minutes left. Ted, I wanted to get back to you because, again, you're a, you're a veteran journalist and you took it upon yourself to help Michael Zakea write this book after all these detailed accounts. Um, tell us more about that process. And, again, it, a lot of cross-checking, uh, looking at yeah. accounts. I mean, it's, it's a, a, a lot of, of background that you have to do. Yeah, there there was. I mean, uh, part of what Mike and I said, even from the outset, that we wanted to do was sort of take his memoir and kind of overlay a journalistic kind of rigor to it that involved a lot of research, a lot of um, a lot of nexus searches, and a whole lot of interviews with dozens of people. And each person would int- introduce me to new people, and they would introduce me to new people beyond that who were there with Mike, both Americans and Iraqis. And, and there was a lot of double-checking. You know, there, we were at a position when we were writing this, the years that we were writing it, where it, it was moving further and further back into people's 
history and, and their memories were beginning to fade a little bit. So sometimes you run into things where there was disagreement where one person remembered it one way and another person remembered it another way. And it just sort of had to, it just became a process, a highly collaborative kind of process between Mike and me where we came to the consensus on, okay, well, here's, here's, here's the, our best guess of what happened at this moment or the motivations of this individual. And, uh, and, and, and then it slowly just sort of, uh, you know, it was like a, it was like a Polaroid picture slowly coming together on the, on the image. And that's, that's what we came out with. And a lot of documentation as well. It, and a lot of images, photographs went a really long way. And we included a number of photographs in the book. And it, those were sometimes, sometimes when you're, when you're talking to somebody about something that was so hugely important to them at the moment that it was happening, when they talk to you about it, they don't even exactly know where to begin. And, and you sort of have to work around them and, and sort of figure out, you know, what's the big picture here? And, you know, if you, if you just source broadly enough, you can, you can pull that together slowly. That's Ted Kemp, senior editor at CNBC, co-author of The Ragged Edge with Michael Zakea. It's a U.S. Marines account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. Before we go, Michael, I wanted to ask you, when you look at Iraq today, what do you think will happen to that country? I really think that the country will fragment into three pieces. I have sort of a bias here, but I believe that what's best for the United States would be to reinforce an independent Kurdistan and support the formation of a new country completely. The southern part, the Shia part, has been completely co-opted by Iran. And, you know, the Sunnis have thrown their lot in with ISIS. And, you know, I don't know how viable that is, but Mm. I don't think that the Sunni part of Iraq would be a viable separate country. I want to thank Michael Zakea and CNBC senior editor Ted Kemp, who co-wrote the book The Ragged Edge, a U.S. Marine's account of leading the Iraqi Army 5th Battalion. Mike is a Connecticut resident. Their book is out now. Coming up, Connecticut's legislature is considering a proposal to raise the state's sales tax, an option that proponents say will diversify revenue sources and benefit cities and towns. We'll examine the proposal and find out why critics fear this move would be detrimental for business and economy. But first, you appreciate the conversations we have here on Where We Live. Support WNPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, wake up! Sleep, we all need it, yet according to a CDC study, roughly one in three U.S. adults does not get enough. On the next Where We Live, we'll consider the impact of this and other sleep-related trends with Dr. Mayer Krieger. His new book is called The Mystery of Sleep, Why a Good Night's Rest is Vital to a Better, Healthier Life. That's tomorrow. Now, this next topic may make you angry because what's the last thing Connecticut residents want to hear coming out of the state capitol? Well, lawmakers are debating whether to raise taxes. One proposal could impact all of us, an increase in the sales tax. Now, what do you think? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. To hear both sides of the debate, we're joined in studio by Joe DeLong, Executive Director of CCM, the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. The group's been lobbying the state to raise the sales tax and allocate a portion to cities and towns so they have a new revenue source to pull from. The proposal comes at a time where many municipalities are bracing for the possibility of less state aid. Now, critics caution that hiking the sales tax will have negative consequences. Opponents include Tim Phelan, president of the Connecticut Retail Merchants Association. Joe and Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I'll start with Joe. Because you lead uh, CCM, tell us why you're in favor of the sales tax hike and what exactly are we talking about? From CCM's perspective, it's really not about a tax increase. It's about revenue diversification. 
Uh, Connecticut has you know, some of the highest property taxes in the country. And the only proposals that we've seen to this point coming out of Hartford and dealing with a $1.6 billion budget deficit are to shift that burden onto municipalities and shift it into the property tax, which only makes us more non-competitive, not only within the region, but across the country. Now, the state's own tax panel study a year ago said and concluded that the state was less reliant on sales taxes than the rest of the nation. And we know that from a competitive standpoint, we have a lower sales tax than almost all of our other surrounding states, with the exception of Massachusetts. What CCM believes is that we should use some of that capacity in the sales tax to offset the increase, to offset increases in the property tax, to really create a more competitive taxing system. Uh, and, and I think that what most elected officials realize, even when they go out and go door to door or go into our communities, the thing that small business owners as well as our rev- residents complain about the most is our over-reliance on the property tax or our high property taxes. So CCM's position isn't an increase in terms of revenue from from the sales tax. In fact, our report that we put out has a variety of recommendations in it that are all about containing cost. And we very much believe that if the legislature doesn't do the things necessary on the cost containment side, then they shouldn't even address the revenue diversification side because the cost containment has to come first. But in in a holistic package, once you control cost, then you have to create a tax system that's competitive. And we're already non-competitive in one area. So putting further strain in that area is the wrong thing to do. If we can grab some capacity within the sales tax and keep it below 7%, because that's critical. If we get above 7%, now we're becoming non-competitive in the sales tax as well, which would be a huge mistake. But if we can grab some of that capacity where we can stay competitive and use it to reduce property taxes and become more competitive in the area of property taxes, then we think that that'll generate economic growth within Connecticut. We're talking about this today. There's a public hearing tomorrow before the the Finance Committee, before the General Assembly. So there's a bill that would increase, it calls for the increase of our sales tax from 6.35% to 6.99%. And so through CCM's proposal, the state could then give that extra portion to cities and towns. How would that work? Well, what CCM is proposing, we're actually proposing some changes to that bill, and we've been talking to proponents about that legislation. And the first change is that that revenue does not need to go into general revenue and to be appropriated by the Appropriations Committee, because if that happens, and we've seen this happen in the past, then the state comes back years later, maybe even one year later when they have problems and they sweep the revenue. And all we've done at that point Mm -hmm. is we've increased taxes and increased revenues, but we've done nothing to offset property taxes and the citizens all across the state you know, bear the burden of that. So we think that that revenue has to be defined specifically for the purpose that we've identified in our report, which is reducing property taxes as a municipal revenue stream. The other component that we believe is critical into this package is that any revenues generated under an increase to the sales tax that go to cities and towns are not considered as a part of a town's ability to pay when it comes to collective bargaining and arbitration. And the reason for that is, again, our proposals are designed to reduce the property tax and make us more competitive across the board from a taxing situation. And if we don't have that provision in this bill, then that money gets swept up in arbitration before it ever goes to reduce the property tax. And all we've done is inflated the cost of local government. So we think that that's critical that these cost containment provisions become a part of this legislation before this legislation is ever enacted. Let's get Tim Phelan to chime in again. You're with the Connecticut Retail Merchants Association. What do you think of CCM's proposal? Well, um, first of all, let me just say we, as retailers, you know, we're part of CCM's communities where they're 
within their towns. So we have a great deal of um, empathy for what individual towns are going through. We also understand the state is having, um, you know, some challenges. But so with that as background, let me just say that, you know, we, um, we I would take some issue with what uh, Joe has described as uh, competition and keeping it below surrounding states. You know, um, sure, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and um, you know, they may have different sales tax rates than I than we do. They may have, you know, higher sales tax rates, but they they don't tax clothing and footwear like we do in Connecticut. And um, you know, for instance, in in Massachusetts, they have a hundred seventy five dollar uh, clothing exemption allowance. Uh, Rhode Island has uh, does not tax uh, clothing and footwear at all. We're in Connecticut. Uh, we do. So that's really not a, a strict um, apples to apples comparison. And the other big competitive um, uh, portion that we're forgetting in this whole debate is the Internet. Um, and that there is no sales tax collected on the Internet at all. So any increase in the sales tax, uh, no matter how you spend it or use it, which quite honestly doesn't necessarily affect us, we we we. we charge and collect and then remit the sales tax to the state, um, you, you're going to exasperate an already uh, challenging uh, situation that the state uh, or state retailers face. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're shoppers are now savvy shoppers. Uh, they do online shopping. They're looking for uh, service and speed, and they have a bunch of different omni-channel types of uh, approaches to shopping. And you, if you increase the sales tax, um, you will just exasperate that um, that 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 move to uh, per- making purchases online, which won't help anybody. Least of all, um, least of all, uh, the cities and towns that are going to uh, need money from uh, from the state. And and finally, I would say that uh, again, we, we we're sympathetic to the situation that CCM and their members uh, have because our members are paying that high property tax. So we understand that. We just don't think that raising the sales tax is the way to go about solving that problem. This is where we live. We're debating whether lawmakers should approve an increase to the sales tax. It's one of of several bills before the General Assembly, and tomorrow the Finance Committee is going to be holding a public hearing. Uh, Tim Phelan's on the phone. He's president of the Connecticut Retail Merchants Association. Joe DeLong is in studio with me, executive director of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. I wanted to go back to Joe uh, because you mentioned that um, cities and towns need this uh, this new revenue stream because we don't want to keep raising the property tax. But the governor also proposed of having cities and towns put a proportion of what they have towards teacher pen- pensions. If that were to be approved, would the this increase, this diversification of revenue really make a difference for cities and towns? Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think that's the important thing to point out here is you really have two groups that have come out with proposals to address the state's budgetary challenges. You know, CCM, who put out one that was collectively put together by by Democrats and Republicans, by big cities and small towns all across the state, and perhaps more importantly, by national economics experts who came in and, and really from the outside in said, this is what you need to do to become competitive again. And then you have, you know, so that that's our proposal. Then you have this other proposal that's come out from the governor that says, recognizing the same deficit. The governor's proposal says we're going to shift the state's burden into the property tax, increase property taxes by almost a billion dollars over the next two years. And by the way, the governor's proposal, um, and I hate to call it the governor's proposal because one area where the governor was right is he's making us have conversations that are difficult conversations. He realizes that magic beans and fairy dust is not going to solve the state's problems. But So he's put out a proposal that we don't like. 
but he's created a conversation we think is an important conversation. But the one thing in that proposal is it doesn't control cost. It just shifts things into the property tax. There's nothing that says we're going to shift these costs, but we're going to cut off these costs from growing. Our proposal is very specific that says we have to control costs first. We have to make real structural changes. And those structural changes have to be done in a way that make us competitive, both within the region and around the rest of the country. Now, one of the things that, that I take a little bit of exception with in terms of the, you know, this non-competitive nature of, no, the sales tax is the wrong place to put it because our local businesses are going to be affected by that, is that we didn't hear the Retailers Association or other businesses groups coming out and screaming against this proposal that the governor had that was going to shift a billion dollars into the property taxes that they all pay. Now, CCM supports any and all efforts to make sure that through Internet sales and those types of things that we're collecting the money that we should be collecting through other states and through the Internet. Um, you know, so we can fix that part of the system, but we cannot continue to put this type of strain on our local business community through just shifting things in the property tax. Now, um, Governor Malloy was asked last week what he thinks about uh, several of these proposals, again, before the legislature to increase possibly the sales tax, maybe increase taxes against high-wage earners. This is what he said. Too much thought is going into how to raise additional money, um, and uh, too little thought going into how do we live within uh, our proximate means. So he's getting at that uh, there's still room to cut spending. Um, is that something that you're optimistic about, Tim Phelan, that because the governor doesn't seem to be um, online with these increases in taxes, as well as the uh, GOP lawmakers, which we know a tie in the Senate, they're very close uh, in terms in the House, um, they're against in increases in taxes. So get, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I, that's the uh, that's the, the $20,000 question. I mean, what is going to happen? We don't know. I mean, the, the political dynamic of the Capitol has certainly changed uh, for the first time in a generation. Um, it's not going to be easy for uh, majority parties to pass a budget. So um, it's going to be really difficult to predict how it how it'll happen. And I, and I think that's why I think the governor is taking a leadership role in saying, you know, it probably knows that, you know, politically it's going to be hard to get any kind of revenue raisers like sales tax or any other types of fees or even income tax increases and have to focus people's attention on cost. I mean, we would agree with CCM in that regard that we need to get, you know, reforms in cost. And we would, um, so I just, I think the, the political dynamic of it, it is going to be difficult for the legislature to come together um, and pass a budget that includes an increase in in taxes because the votes in the particularly in the state senate you know may not be there uh, for that so maybe we should focus on what will pass um, and that may be in the areas of, of, of mutual agreement between our organizations which is maybe we can find some structural changes uh, that can reduce costs i would also just add and tim I mean, we're I almost think, out of time <laughs> quickly <laughs> didn't, we, didn't we already pass a bill isn't there already uh, something uh, in statute now that allows um, you know, you know the, the state sales tax revenue to be diverted back a portion of it, anyways, to be diverted back uh, to municipalities. Uh, that the MRSA uh, language that was added uh, a couple oh, of years we ago. We got to go, but we thank you so much, uh, Tim Phelan and Joe DeLong, Executive Director of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. This is where we live. If you support these kinds of conversations, uh, here are two of my colleagues that tell you how to support WNPR. <laughs>